right? So the, you should be a Marxist because that's the best way to be an anti-racist or that's the best way to be an anti-imperialist or that's the best way to be a feminist, right? They would kind of do this thing. And that's an 80s thing. That wasn't really the 60s. everyone welcome back happy new year welcome back to bunga cast your home for 2024 as it has been for the past seven years i hope um welcome back for all the long-time listeners and welcome to the to the new ones maybe picked up maybe this is your new year's resolution listen to bunga and uh 2024 this is somewhat kind of facetious on my part because um we're recording this at the end of 2023 so um if anything that we discuss now is, is is not mentioned and something major if the world has ended and we're failing to talk about the world ending um don't shout at us we'll get there but we just haven't gotten there yet because where we are the world is still very much um with us even if it does seem to be falling apart to some degree anyway um today we're welcoming uh, chris cutrone um to talk about his book the death of the millennial left um chris i didn't ask how you'd like to be introduced so maybe uh, if you'd like to introduce yourself uh, well, sure. Um, so I'm uh, the original kind of teacher of the Platypus Affiliated Society, and it came out of my academic teaching where I, I teach at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. I teach critical theory uh, in the art history department, and I taught for many years at the University of Chicago in the social sciences college curriculum. So that's my essential background. But why I am in the public sphere is because my students dragged me into it. Um, during the uh, war on terror, they wanted me to help them understand the world outside of the classroom. And so I obliged. Always good to have an alibi, certainly. Um, <laughs> this podcast, for those for those who are new to us, uh, is uh, George Hoare in the UK and Philip Cunliffe also in the UK. Hi, guys. Hi, hey. how's it going? Happy uh, 2024. Happy New Year. Yeah. It sounds really weird one. saying that at the end of December, but <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And I'm Alex Oakley. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, I think I forgot to introduce myself. Um, so um, this book, The Death of Millennial Left, um, it's a lot of themes that we've discussed a lot on this podcast. So it'll be nice to delve into them and discuss them with you, Chris, um, because it'll be a, a kind of a different perspective, I guess, on issues that we've discussed, you know, at, at length, really, over the over the seven or so years that we've been doing this. Um, mm. Firstly, the book itself, it's a collection of essays, which has been published over a period of time with a couple of new ones thrown in. So what motivated publishing them together at this point? And I should also note, I think there's a second edition coming out soon as well. Right. So um, I first came up with the idea of collecting my writings in 2018. So a couple of years into the Trump administration, uh, prior to the squad election, I felt like a certain kind of beat was reached in terms of a historical interval. Um, so I had uh, been writing mostly in my capacity with Platypus um, starting in 2006. And uh, kind of one genre of writing was commentary on current events. 
and challenging more or less gently, more or less strongly, uh, the kind of left doxa about how to think about capitalist politics. And that's what's collected in this volume, um, The Death of the Millennial Left. It's really my writings that have to do with capitalist politics, changes that were happening, the war on terror, the Obama election, the Great Recession, the Arab Spring, Occupy Wall Street, and then finally, um, Sanders and Trump, the kind of Bernie moment, but the Trump election. Um, And also along the way, some kind of perennial issues, which turned out to be more salient than I would have thought uh, back in 2006, namely uh, what the old uh, left used to call the black question in the United States or anti-racism in the left. Um, So those are the main themes of the book. Now, you mentioned, yeah, there's going to be a second volume. The other genre of writing that I've been doing in this time of the millennial left has been more on history and theory, the history and theory of Marxism. And those writings will be in the second volume, which is titled Marxism and Politics. So um, what has happened, of course, in the last five years, since since I originally thought about collecting my writings, um, was that you know, we have this other kind of crisis of uh, COVID and the end of the first term of Trump anyway, and uh, the second Bernie campaign, um, Biden's election, the expansion of the squad of progressive Democrats in the Congress um, that has really solidified for me my sense of the millennial moment passing the millennial left's moment passing um, in its consolidation as part of the Democratic Party in the United States. Um, Now in Britain, you know, there was a parallel development around Jeremy Corbyn and momentum. Um, There was an attempt to basically what most people would think of as pull the Labour Party to the left. Um, That doesn't seem to have worked out. Um, But In the United States, there still is this kind of illusion that the millennial left has, in fact, pushed the Democrats to the left. Um, You know, again, the the squad, the progressives in Congress, and even Biden is seen as the most progressive president of our lifetimes. Um, So, again, not much from my perspective has changed. but maybe the point has been underscored in the meantime. Um, so, so, I mean, about yeah. the millennial left, because, I mean, you know, the, the term, I guess, does prompt the question a bit. When mm-hmm. was the millennial left and what makes a millennial? I mean, why define it in, in generational terms, if indeed that's what you're doing? No, that's a good point. Um, so, of course, I am not a millennial. I'm Gen X. I'm the dreaded Gen X. And what that means the is The worst that ones. Yeah, the worst were the worst. Uh, well, no, maybe the boomers were the worst, actually. The boomers did more They're damage. All the worst. Yeah, we're, we're all boomers anyway, but, but the boomers might have been worse because they might have done more damage than my generation was able to do. Um, so I've been uh, kind of active in thinking on the left for a very long time since I was an adolescent, since I was in high school. And I just had a very different experience of the left and uh, the meaning of basic things like Marxism and socialism. Um, And I had actually stepped away. It's something that I talk about in the book. I had stepped away from the left. I had certainly dropped out of activism. 
I continue to think as a Marxist, but in a less um, directly political way in terms of current events going on in the world in the 90s. And uh, I did see a change with the millennial left. So I would say my generation kind of uh, took its history up through the Battle of Seattle in 1999 and anti-WTO protests thereafter and alter globalization, anti-globalization, you know, um, again, up to the 9-11 attacks and the war on terror. Um, so I had stepped away from the left. And as I mentioned earlier, I was brought back by my students. So I taught Marxism academically. And I certainly had a group of friends who I more or less converted to Marxism <laughs> um, in a kind of a, a little bit of a crazy way. Um, you know, we were students of Moish Postone at the University of Chicago. And um, I basically convinced my fellow students in the bona fides of uh, Lenin and Trotsky um, as someone who, who was studying from a Frankfurt School background. So I was a kind of an academic Marxist, I guess a budding academic Marxist or something like that. It wasn't terribly political. But then there was this wave of activism around the war on terror. And that's when I date the emergence of the millennial left. So I was teaching at the University of Chicago starting in 2002, teaching at the Art Institute starting in 2004. And uh, I saw students become politicized and radicalized around the war on terror in already very early on in my teaching. And certainly by 2006, when Platypus started and when other things were happen, happening contemporaneously. So the new Students for a Democratic Society was founded in 2006 out of the anti-war movement. So to me, that marks just to, you know, 18, just 20 to clarify, years. Just to clarify, Chris, when you say the war on terror, um, do you mean the invasion of Iraq specifically? Or was it with, with these student activists that you encountered, were they contesting uh, the war on terror on a broader front? It's a good question. I would say that there were already questions in, in, in my students' minds around 9-11, um, around the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan. So uh, I would say that the Iraq war uh, really ramped things up a great deal. And I do think that the Iraq war was a turning point. Um, uh, I just so happened to have been watching The Crown and it depicts Tony Blair and it depicts Tony Blair at the height of his popularity. It also depicts him as a kind of moral scold on Bill Clinton regarding Yugoslavia, the breakup of Yugoslavia and the NATO intervention there and getting the U S to support. Um, and um, there's, you know, sort of foreshadowed that his popularity is going to crash and it's not depicted yet, but of course, Tony Blair's popularity crashed around the Iraq war in particular. So the Iraq war was a, was a specific kind of political crisis um, that certainly politicized and radicalized people. So, you know, when I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking who, who were my students, you know, 18 to 22 year olds between 2002 and 2006, basically. Um, and they're coming to consciousness. 
around those events, around those issues. So before the Great Recession, before Occupy Wall Street, right, um, politicized around issues of war and imperialism, um, and yet still kind of interested in Marxism. Like I said, I was I was teaching Marxism at an academic level, and certainly the Marxist left was very active in the anti-war movement. They were there. So my students would go to my classes, then they'd leave class, go to an anti-war demo and encounter the Marxist left. And they'd be like, wait, this doesn't quite add up to how Chris is teaching Marxism in class. And so they had questions. But I think that, you know, I, I know that that it's a kind of moving target. Like, when did the millennial left start? And, um, you know, certainly there's a strong impulse now to forget the earlier history and to say it began with the yeah. Bernie campaign. Right. Um, and I think that that's usual as usual for the left. It tends to be very amnesiac regarding its own history. Um, so I mean, it's, it makes, it makes a lot of sense actually. Cause I mean, although, you know, we are, have been more interested in the post global financial crisis, period, not just the start of the Bernie campaign, but really dating it from, you know, the post 2008 period. It's yeah. true that there is a, a prehistory, as it were, um, you know, so <laughs> in our terms, I guess the end of history, but um, where, right. you know, people, the very oldest end of millennials, if you date them um, for just being born in 1980, they'd be 23 at the time of the Iraq the invasion of Iraq war. Yeah. And then the youngest end of the cohort would be 23 now. Um, in 2023. Right. So I guess that that kind of fits together nicely. And it, it's true, your book, I mean, your book draws attention to that kind of prehistory, which um, I think we haven't discussed very much, but it was, it was interesting to kind of put that into dialogue, because I think my impression is that there's a big, there's a bit of a gulf, right? So there's the anti-Iraq war invasion, and then kind of nothing was really happening from 20, from 2007 to, um, until the, until the crash, until the post-crash period. So it's kind of, um, the anti-war movement had certainly um, collapsed around the Obama election. So I wrote, I write in the book, I have three essays, four, depending on how you count it, on Obama, um, you know, different aspects of the Obama candidacy and, and election, namely as, uh, as a black man being elected to the presidency of the United States as an anti-war candidate against Hillary Clinton in 2008 in the primaries, um, and also as a purported economic reformer, New New Dealism, circa uh, 2008. You know, so a lot of things came together. Um, I do think that the prospect of the end of the George W. Bush presidency, you know, the end of his second term, the prospect of a Democrat being elected, um, the Democrats had sort of been equivocal, but generally posed as critics of the war on terror. Um, but certainly Obama, like his candidacy, his election seemed to bring an end to the anti-war movement because the anti-war movement got what it wanted. It got rid of George W. Bush. It, it brought a Democrat in and it brought a nominally anti-war uh, Democrat in. Um, yeah, I mean, I, th so, I guess in, in, in the US, it becomes it's clear, more clearly marked by the election of Obama, whereas in the UK, where, where the three of us were, you have the continuation of a labor government, which is, um, has kind of lost popularity, but which is still there. So I think that maybe, um, yeah, changes the, the way that that um, 
is marked, I guess. But to, to move on, because I think what we wanted to focus on, I guess, is maybe, well, now the second phase of the millennial left, as it were, which is um, the post-global financial crisis period and the period of Occupy, of the Arab Spring, of the movement of the squares in Southern Europe, the supposed return of protest. So in responding to this... Anti-austerity. Anti-austerity Anti-austerity, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that during this period, I think that the writing from that period was more optimistic, I think, that the conjuncture was leading young protesters to focus on, you know, capitalism under quotation marks rather than imperialism, quotation marks, um, on the economic right. crisis rather than U.S. military adventurism. So why were you more optimistic about that? Well, I felt like it was a broader crisis and also raised deeper questions. Um, like I said, there was some preparation for the ground of reconsidering Marxism, but it was skewed into anti-imperialism and really kind of bogus explanations for the war on terror, like attributing um, wrongly, I think, economic motives to the war on terror that I don't think were really there at all. Um, and so, you know, New New Dealism, also the question of progressivism. You know, it wasn't that long ago that progressive was like a bad word. You couldn't call yourself a liberal in American politics. You couldn't call yourself a progressive, let alone like a socialist, right? So now those have all been sort of collapsed into each other. I'll say one thing about... Um, you know, the optimism. Um, I thought that the millennial left, the people I knew at least, I mean, it did, there was a rotating cast of characters, if you will, in the broader world. But I thought it's actually good to have this other experience now. So the experience of the anti-war movement, the experience of the Great Recession, the experience of anti-austerity protests, because that's what I would subsume it under. I would subsume it under anti-austerity because there was a lot of like campus uh, protests against cuts in California. I also think in, in Britain, like pre-Occupy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think that that was an important moment, you know, again, to open the question, the question of capitalism, the question of what kind of society we live in, um, and it's young people, of course, young people were impacted by the Great Recession in a particular way. There were no jobs waiting for them after graduation. Right. Um, but it also impacted their parents. It impacted the broader community, it impacted the broader world. And so it couldn't be seen in the usual terms of like, okay, young people moralistically are outraged by things mm -hmm. like imperialist war, right? And so, um, you know, it, it, it meant transcending a kind of a student left movement character that, you know, the replay of the Vietnam anti-war movement that you saw in the yeah. war on terror, right? Um, and that only very hesitantly reached out into other domains and, and raised the question of, well, what does the war say about larger social issues. Now, one missed opportunity, I'll just say about that aspect of it, because it will come back with the with the Bernie moment. Um, the millennial left wasn't good at uh, integrating its veterans. So there was another cohort, uh, 
with the millennial left, namely the millennials who served in the war on terror and who were politicized, who were radicalized by serving in the war on terror and, and did develop an opposition to U.S. war policy and imperialism, what have you, and who you know came from working class background usually, and so had a different kind of picture of what the war represented. Um, and, you know, I encountered a lot of those people. So they were part of the anti-war movement to an extent, but they weren't well integrated into it. But they did make a comeback around the Bernie campaign in the United States. And I will also say that even though uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders kind of got their profile out of the economic crisis and out of a new kind of social democratic impulse, that they were also bolstered and rendered acceptable to the left by their anti-imperialist bona fides, right? They're being long-term critics of imperialism, being long-term anti-war politicians, I think helped a great deal in both cases. It's hard to imagine, actually, for me, the possibility of Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn having the profile that they had if they had not been anti-war politicians very prominently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think that I mean, they could so, have had the appeal. Yeah. I mean, w- one thing that, um, before turning actually to, to the kind of Bernie and, and Corbyn moment, um, the phase, I guess the second phase of the millennial left is the phase of activism, of anti-austerity movements. Um, perhaps this is a slightly bit more of a European slant on it than, than a U.S. Mm-hmm. one, but um, mm-hmm. the focus on leaderlessness and horizontalism, which was certainly a, a focus, you know, this also happened in the U.S. with Occupy, um, but the movements were, were bigger and more important in, in, in Europe, um, certainly in Southern Europe. Um, now there's been a lot of um, criticisms of that, um, of... Um, trying to understand, I think, generally the criticisms, and to take one example, Vincent Bevan's recent book, um, looking at mm-hmm. the decade of protests, and we had him on the podcast recently, um, listeners mm-hmm. might want to check that out. Um, mm-hmm. Generally, the, the criticism runs like this opposition to any form of hierarchical organization is self-defeating, and it is a sort of over-correct, overcorrection against what the protesters saw as the Stalinism of the old ways of doing things. Um, how do you read that moment? So it's an interesting thing. So horizontalism, I used to joke, you know, there's the um, Stokely Carmichael, I think, like, what's the position of women in the movement? And he said, prone. Do you remember that one? Right. And I, I had my own version of anti-horizontalism. I said, you know, I want, I want a movement that is not horizontal, but that is vertical, that is erect. Right. <laughs> um, so that comes from my generation, horizontalism. <clears throat> right, the rhizomatic, um, you know, the grassroots yeah. taken very literally. That that's my generation, and so I know that shit very well, and I've always hated it. Um, now, the modification of that, however, is um, what's the the two phrases? It's movements without leaders, but it's also protests without demands. Yeah, because leaders can establish a invidious hierarchy and demands can be co-opted. Right. I'm reminded of the uh, protests in China. I think it was just last year or earlier this year 
where they held up blank sheets of papers, right? So that they couldn't be persecuted for saying anything in particular, right? It was basically like a kind of a free speech movement or a kind of a mute protest. And I feel like, well, you know, protests without demands or with, with kind of slogans or catchphrases that don't have an immediate kind of demand to them, or if the, or the demands are so impossible to meet that they, that they aren't really demands, you know? So I connect uh, me too and black lives matter to also to this phenomenon of uh, movements without leaders. You know, nobody speaks for the movement and also there's no real demand. It's just, me too. It's just Black Lives Matter. And then maybe defund the police, which again is so impossible and it could mean anything, right? That it, it can't be co-opted. So I do think there was that element, right? I remember the book, The Coming Insurrection um, by the Invisible Committee, right? And of course, the product, again, of my generation, right? So my generation's bad influence, um, I would say, if not people older than me even. Um, you know, sort of and, you know, the anarchist character of Occupy Wall Street, of Occupy. Um, now, that has been an enduring feature. And it comes out of the wake of the 60s. It comes out of what I would refer to as the post-political left of the 80s and 90s. But especially the 90s. And especially like alter globalization or World Social Forum a kind of activism or anti-globalization. Now, what cuts against that, however, is I thought you were going to raise this about Europe, um, that even though you have the Bernie campaign in the United States and you have the Trump phenomenon, that Syriza in Greece and Podemos in Spain, you had a crisis of the old established social democratic parties. Well, in Europe. well, that I mean, so that's where I was going to move towards that, actually, because that is precisely a kind of I, what I would see as the change between the second and third phase. You know, Syriza um, becomes the largest party in Greek parliament in 2015. It's also the year of the Bernie and Corbyn campaigns. Um, so there's a, a change. And actually, I really remember that moment because um, suddenly there wasn't much talk about protests and occupations and much more right. about organizing and elections. Um, and it right. what really um, hit me, I think, trying to remember back this and when we were writing um, our book on this, I was kind of, you know, we were all trying to kind of recollect about that that moment. And for me, it was mm -hmm. figures um, of the millennial left on both sides of the Atlantic. I think particularly Aaron Bastani and Bhaskar Sankara, both respectively, yeah. um, talking yeah. about winning. And it was like, oh, yeah. for me, that sounded like a moment of maturation on the left, um, uh -huh. however one-sided, because it was about winning and it wasn't just about being and occupying space and just you know, like you say, um, Me Too or Black Lives Matter, just a general statement about how you want society to be. Um, it was a had it was political in some sense, at least in terms of having goals and and potentially a strategy of how to get there. Right. So uh, fully lux uh, fully automated luxury communism. Right. That's Bastani. Um, yeah. And and is it sometimes also gay communism? Is it fully automated luxury gay communism? I think sometimes some people that's added. added some in people there. added. It depends that. how yeah. ambitious you are. I think. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, you know, and I just thought, okay, right. And again, it kind of like um, in the in the austerity moment and in the moment of well, we don't have to accept this. You know, we don't have to accept 
the Washington consensus, neoliberal consensus, you know, the kind of 40 years of um, basically austerity starting in the 70s, um, that we don't actually have to accept that. Uh, and so, okay, so the optimism, you mentioned the optimism. So let me come back to the optimism. Um, I don't know that I was made optimistic exactly by Occupy Wall Street. I definitely liked the fact that anarchism was going to change things up a little bit with regard to the Marxism of the left, the kind of specious, I would say, Marxism of the left. Um, I did welcome that. Now, the Arab Spring, on the other hand, right, um, was hopeful, but also I, I had a sense of where it's going to go. I did. And so I also thought there's a melancholic character to it. Um, meaning that, you know, the way I always like to put it is with economic crises, they hit the metropolitan countries very hard, but they hit the peripheral countries much harder. Right. So obviously Southern Europe was hit harder than Northern Europe. Um, the Middle East was hit harder than Europe, right? The United States was hit. It was hit in a way that's actually largely invisible to the left, meaning it was hit in the areas that now people call the red states or Trump country, right? Um, and, you know, it did hit the metropolitan areas, but, but differently and less, you know. So I do think that uh, now for me as a teacher and also taking a kind of, I don't know, instead of the thousand meter stare of a veteran of war, a thousand year view of history or something. Um, you know, the hopefulness was that the depth of the problem is going to be revealed for me. Right. So in other words, it had a wistful character to it. So I don't know that I was ever particularly hopeful, but I always thought of things rather negatively. Right. So what you're talking about in terms of a political moment, the reemergence of a political moment, I welcomed rather as now we're going to see how deep the political problem actually goes. Right. So the unraveling of the electoral parties and, you know, at a very superficial level, we should say, right. Meaning losing elections, you know, voters not turning out, um, you know, I guess Brexit, Brexit's the other thing that really, uh, you know, how did Brexit win? Oh, it won in the north of England in the old bastion of labor. How did that happen? Right. And it's like, well, because a lot of things that were taken for granted by the old political consensus turned out simply not to be true and to be very hollow at the core. So I think that for me, again, the hope was that now the depth of the problem could be revealed and it would be harder for people to avoid it. Now, when you bring up Bastani and Sankara, you know, Bhaskar, I know for a long time, um, you know, I think, well, I wish that they allowed themselves to not be quite as hopeful in the way that they might've been at that moment. Right. Again, thinking about winning. Right. And so I just wonder, I... did you think about winning or not? Go ahead. Yeah, so, I mean, 
my take, I mean, my recollection of it is slightly different um, uh, in terms of, I mean, I obviously, like Alex, I was struck by the shift away from horizontalism to a focus of the left on these insurgent parties like Podemos and Syriza. Um, I was uh, confident, I think, from the get-go, 2015, that Syriza would turn out to be a dud because they were so clearly unwilling and incapable of breaking from the Eurozone, which was the central question of you know Greek politics, and that was very obvious. But something I was curious about, um, and that in a way struck me more than the shift to party politics, was um, the difference, and at the risk of sounding superficial, but nonetheless it did strike me, was the difference in style between um, people mm. like Bastani, Sunkara, um, and the previous left, you know, so my memory of the of the kind of the Marxist left when I was an undergraduate was really kind of people who kind of looked bedraggled, um, <laughs> you know, kind of uh, hanging around with really kind of old, um, gaunt, hollow-eyed, um, you know, kind of prematurely aged men kind of smoking rollies on campus and handing out <laughs> copies of The Socialist Worker. Um, and it's a really, you know, it looks, I mean, it just looks terrible. The paper looked like toilet paper. It was very poorly printed, smudge your fingers. It looked like it fell out of a time warp from the seventies. And so Cheaply I was amazed, right. very badly produced. And so I was very struck by the fact that people around Jacobin, for instance, were so committed to, um, high production values. Um, and that kind of seemed to me to mark something about a shift in the way in which the um, this new kind of left was willing to take itself more seriously to that extent, and also at the same token, the you know the fully automated luxury communism. Though, like you, you know, like you've indicated, there was a serious sense of froth. The other element to it was that it was optimistic and Promethean yeah. in a way yeah. that was very strikingly different to the dismal kind of. Um, the dismal save the NHS um, dirge of the um, right. of the British Labour left and the SWP, um, and so though I wasn't sold on it because of those things, but I was um, intrigued by trying to account for where that came from. Um, so I wondered if you know how you if you were taken or struck by those things as well, and how you processed them or understood them. Right. So I mean, I would sort of zoom out a bit and say the millennial moment was generally more optimistic than my generation. Right. So I, I do think that these were young people, children who might've experienced the prosperity of the nineties as young people. And therefore the contrast between the kind of optimism and prosperity of the 90s with the war on terror and the Great Recession was a shock to them. And they never quite shook off that sense of optimism. And, you know, I remember that optimism. I was a young adult in my 20s in the 90s. Um, and so I do remember a time when it seemed like old style racism was going to become a thing of the past right? The hip hop yeah. revolution, there was a moment. Um, I was active as an artist in the 90s. I was around the new black artists and the post black black artists. Um, and, you know, there was a moment where it seemed like, okay, we're moving on historically. 
Now, with the 21st century, with the millennium, the 2000 aughts, it seemed like, oh shit, we're being dragged back now. Right? So there is that general optimism. I mean, what I'd say about Jacobin and its high production values is, yeah, you can do that when you have money. And he got rich people to bankroll him. Um, in other words, they there was a realization that, you know, journals like The Nation and The Progressive and in these times, you know, you needed a generation turnover and maybe you needed a new publication. And, you know, so I was a lot more cynical about that, right? And, you know, because I would say, okay, so here's here's the thing. Those old Marxist left sectarian organization newspapers that are printed on the cheapest paper with the cheapest ink possible are more literate than Jacobin is. They really are. Um, so I, don't, I don't know. If, <laughs> with, with, I don't know. That might be true of um, that might be true of the ones that you used to read, but I'm not sure it'll be true of the Socialist Workers Paper. I, mean, I think um, not not to get hung up on the style thing, but there is a there is another element to this. I think which Phil also hinted at, which is that mm. the fustiness of the left prior to kind of left populism, um, prior yeah. to the millennial or the second phase right. of the millennial left, etc. The stuff of the past whatever ten years is that it was a historical reenactment society, at least on the far left. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. entirely concerned with the past and trying to apply those old models to the present in a right. direct fashion, right? And that was always off-putting to me because I was like, I don't want to hang out with those guys. What, what, uh, that's like not my aesthetic, you know, because ultimately, mm-hmm. because it has no political import, you decide on, on, on aesthetic grounds and you go, well, right. that's not my vibe, not interesting. Right. And what was new about right. the millennial left was that it seemed so disconnected from any past um, leftism that it was able to, uh, you know, this was I, I not exactly what I think now, but that's was was my impression maybe you well, know, seems. 15, 10, 15 years ago was that it, it was like okay we're going to deal with the problem now, particularly with this kind of pro- post crisis, post global financial crisis world, in a way that the left previously had um, been completely hung up on on the past. So I think that in that regard it, it marked a, you know, it did mark a sort of breach. Let me just say that also so I mean. Okay, go ahead. Well, it was just to say, I mean, I know Baskar also was, um, I mean, he was involved in Platypus or was um, kind of, uh, he passed through Platypus. Some Platypus. He was aware. Yeah. Oh, right. I thought it was, I thought he attended Platypus sessions or something like that. Um, oh, he did speak on I mean, some I, panels. That's true. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I suppose, you know, so to be clear, I... My, I was struck by those differences, not because they seemed to me so significant. It was more that the, um, it seemed to me to be the only kind of, in some ways, the only kind of meaningful difference, in fact, um, because politically mm. it was, um, you know, I, re- I, I was fairly confident that they, it wouldn't, um, you know, it wouldn't go in any particularly useful direction, um, at least as far as um, a revive, you know, kind of a mass revival of radical politics was concerned. Um, so, but I think you know what you say about the optimism of the '90s, and that explains that um, 
the kind of the glitzy, this kind of superficial glitziness of fully automated luxury communism as a meme, as well as the willingness to kind of um, devote resource to looking a certain way. I think that probably does go, um, you know, I think that probably does go some way to explaining that difference with the old left. I mean, let me say about um, my writings collected in this book, in the death of the millennial left, that I was very self-conscious of not trying to apply a kind of Marxist analysis to current events. In other words, I tried to work more imminently through the discourse of mainstream capitalist politics, you know, taking up issues like third way politics and, you know, the radical center, this kind of idea. And, um, you know, just sort of take the phenomena at their own terms at face value and, and think about it in those ways and really not at all do the usual applying the old Marxist framework to everything and anything um, because, you know, certainly I could have done that. I could have said, oh, well, you know, you think it's this, but it's really that. And, you know, material conditions and the economy. And anyway, don't you know history? And I self-consciously chose not to do that. Um, and which I think was confusing for people at the time that I wrote those essays, uh, people in and out of Platypus. Um, they were kind of like, okay, you know, especially with the crisis of neoliberalism, the emergence of a post-neoliberalism, and the left's anti-neoliberalism, right? So I basically wanted to, you know, maintain a kind of independence from the way the left sort of reflexively was, you know, anti-war, anti-imperialist, anti-neoliberal, anti-Republican Party, anti-Milton Friedman, all those kinds of things. And just think, okay, well, but wait, how are people actually talking about these things in the world? And how is the crisis manifesting at that level? At the level of, we used to talk about things this way. It seems to not really be working anymore to talk about it that way. What are the cracks or the seams that we're showing? Like how to turn things that I'm not sure exactly what Marxism has to say about these things really in any kind of detailed or important way. Um, but what, what are these current events showing us about the nature of social and political reality about the actual world that we're living in? And, you know, so that then we could consider, okay, what might Marxism have to do with that or not have to do with that? Right. So I know what you mean in terms of, um, you know, been there, done that, heard it all before, you know, don't you know history and here's your Marxist theory and we'll just tell you X, Y, and Z why everything is the way it is and how pointless that was. I mean, of course, it wasn't really that anyway. In other words, what the old sectarian Marxist left, the Leninist, Trotskyist, Stalinist, Maoist left, um, what they were really doing and also the anarchist left they weren't actually imposing something a hundred years old on the present or even 80 years old or 75 years old. They were imposing rather the sixties and more importantly, the eighties. So I saw them imposing a kind of post new left 1980s style Marxist left 
framework. Can you clarify what that means? Because I think when you say 60s, I think people generally know what you mean. They'll go, yeah, mm-hmm. 60s radicalism. Mm-hmm. I know what the vibe is there. That's the new left. Yeah. What does the 80s mm-hmm. left mean? Well, the protest demo uh, culture of the left and the Marxist organization newspapers that you encounter at the protest demo. Um, so for me, you know, I was a young person. I was an adolescent. It was... In the United States, it was anti-apartheid. It was Central American solidarity, right? So it was anti-Reagan, anti-Thatcher, anti-Cold War, right? Um, So it was about, like, uh, uh, you know, opposing Reagan in all different ways, but primarily at the level of the second Cold War. And so it was... It was about, you know, this whole idea of like a left pole of attraction, you know, like that you're going to sort of raise the red flag and be the left pole of attraction in the movement. It sounds like something very old. It sounds like something maybe going back to the 1930s, but actually it's only really from the 1980s um, because the, the the Marxists that were around in the 60s didn't, didn't do exactly that. And also... Um, you know, you guys may might have this experience. You go to an anti-war demo and you think, oh, it's an anti-war demo, right? Stop the war coalition, right? Um, but then you realize, oh, it's, you know, you, you think it's kind of a liberal anti-war kind of, you know, but then you realize it's organized by these hardcore Marxists, mm-hmm. right? And it's kind of like, okay, you know, again, from my perspective, um, being someone who thought of himself as a Marxist from an early age, I always was aware of the fact, well, you don't have to be a Marxist to be against the war. You don't. you don't have to be a Marxist to be against austerity. You don't have to be, you know, you do, it's just not necessary. It's unmotivated in a way. And I feel like that kind of weird disconnect that's from the eighties. I think that that's really an eighties holdover of like, okay, mm. the Marxists are actually, you know, it, the SWP in Britain, the ISO in the United States and other groups like solidarity in the United States, they self-consciously thought of themselves as their role was to be the best builder of movements. Right. So the, you should be a Marxist because that's the best way to be an anti-racist or that's the best way to be an anti-imperialist, or that's the best way to be a feminist, right? They would kind of do this thing. And that's an 80s thing. That wasn't really the 60s. So just, um, Chris, maybe to, uh, and correct me if I've got any of this wrong, but to sort of sum up, I guess, the the lifespan of the millennial left, if you will. So kind of born in in 2003, then had its adolescence around kind of, you know, um, global financial crisis and maybe some anti-austerity protests, maybe Occupy Wall Street, Arab Spring there as well, reached maturity by 2015 um, and then and then died. Um, and so w- <laughs> when, when did it, when did it die and, and why? Because by 2017, you, you know, you, you wrote that piece I saying it's dead, it. but, um, yeah. So between 2015, it's maturity and, and uh, it was dead by 2017. Um, yeah. When, when did it die and, and, and why, who, who killed it or, 
I don't won't, won't extend, the, extend the metaphor too much further, but yeah, what right, will happen right. next? Okay, so you know what immediately comes to mind is a a phrase of Hegel, actually, from the introduction to the philosophy of history. He said about um, the British. He said the problem with the British is that, or the English, he might have said, um, is that they think that they have freedom like a possession. And they're no longer struggling for freedom. They're no longer fighting for freedom. And uh, because of that, they've they've given up the struggle and the fight. And they are like uh, middle-aged men who have abandoned the dreams of youth and are just waiting to die. That's uh, harsh. Harsh on the English, but might, might in fact be tr- as true today as, uh, as then. As then. Well, you know, he's thinking of it in terms of um, the French Revolution and the the perfidious Albion yeah perfidious Albion right like the the British organized the counter-revolution at a global scale right even though before before the French Revolution the French Enlightenment were were Anglophiles right Mm. they loved it they they loved it yeah gotta be right gotta be careful backing the uh backing the Brits um yeah (laughs) but perfidious so, so this and so, so this, this is the um, the millennial left in that in that kind of twenty sixteen period. Is that yeah? Is that your, yeah, okay. Cashed out, cashed out, right uh, on the Bernie campaign, on the Corbyn, you know, the momentum moment in labor. That it's like, okay, this mm-hmm. is going to be the fulfillment, and really misreading the moment, right? So, I mean, one thing that I've had in the back of my mind for the last eight years, basically since. Uh, Trump and Bernie and, and, and Corbyn. Um, I have thought, okay, am I missing something? Is there going to be a progressive moment in capitalism, basically in capitalist politics, progressive capitalist politics? I thought, well, there could be, there's no reason why not. In other words, there's no reason why Jeremy Corbyn could not have been prime minister. There's no reason why Bernie Sanders could not have been president of the United States actually, um, and even implemented a great deal of uh, their program. There's no, there's no objective reason why not. There's only political reasons why not, right? Uh, in other words, I've always thought, well, but there isn't really a politics for this. There isn't enough of a politics for this to, to make this happen. You know, th- there seems to be a crisis. There seems to be a need for it. You know, why not have a new New Deal? Why not? Like, there's no there's no actual obstacle to it. There's just a political inability to do it. Right. But that's, that's, that's everything. (laughs) That's, that's the whole thing. Right. And I just thought, well, okay, the millennials are giving up by embracing what appears to be a political possibility, but is not, it's not the possibility they think. And it's because they have a shallow understanding of politics actually. Um, and, so, so yeah. actually, let me let me let me get onto a, a question which we're going to skip over, but actually, it, it really comes up here because so even if you're willing to take it on its own terms and go, okay, new New Deal, um, it's not perhaps that emancipatory. Um, it was a defeat back then for the left to accept the New Deal, but from our perspective now, it would be progressive. It would be a more progressive form of capitalism yeah. than what we have now. Okay, so how is that going to be achieved? Um, part of the way that one of the answers that the left, the millennial left came up with was populism, like left populism. Um, 
in fact, one of the splits, divisions or tensions within the left populist moment is between those who saw themselves more as socialists and those who saw themselves more as populists. I mean, Podemos in Spain split over this quite explicitly, right? And that's quite a pure, nice, pure example of it. Um, What's your take on this? Here we have DSA. Do you think think the left should have been more... Do you think... Do you think the left, the Bernie left, the Corbyn left, whatever, should have been more populist? Would that have been, at least on its own terms, more of a, a solution than what they ended up with? I mean, possibly. I mean, again, it comes back to the class question, right? And I think it's complicated in Britain because unlike the Democratic Party, the Labour Party really does have an organized labor base. It has the Trade Union Council, you know, it has that base. And, you know, in the United States, the the unions are a base for the Democratic Party, but not in the same way. Now, of course, you could question whether labor really has that base or not. So I, I always like to point out, and I did point out, it's in the book, you know, it's a kind of a throwaway statement, but a lot of my writing is like this. I have like a sentence that sums up a lot. You could write a book on it which is, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's constituency is not a working class district. It's a, it's a progressive middle-class district and Bernie Sanders represents Vermont, you know, Vermont's not like proletarian USA. It's not, it's twee middle-class hippie New England. Right. And so, you know, it's all well and good that they are the avatars of uh, progressivism and I guess a progressive populism, but it, it does raise the question of what's the base for that populism. Now, so w- when you when you pose that question just like that, then I think, well, maybe we have gotten the progressive populism that is there to get, namely a progressive middle class populism. Maybe that's all that was there, and maybe we did in fact get it. I mean, in, at least in theory, what, I think the populism could reach beyond that. I mean that is what I was implying, I guess, by the term, that it would be able right. to move beyond those who are in, intuitive, instinctively attracted to left politics, which is to say a kind of more um, literary or whatever, intellectual middle class or whatever, um, right. and, and broaden, broaden it out. Um, but that would mean probably dropping a lot of the pet concerns of, of the left. Um, as a way to do yeah, that I mean, my own background, symbolism. my own class background is I'm working class. And I remain working class, meaning, um, you know, I'm adjunct faculty. I'm part of the proletarianized academia. And I, I don't have any expectations other than can I survive? Can I survive and not be too broken down when I retire? Right. Can I live? You know, I don't have any aspirations beyond that. That's my family. And, you know, they vote Democrat sometimes. They vote Republican sometimes. They voted for Obama. They voted for Trump. They voted for Al Gore. They voted for George W. Bush after 9-11. You know, they didn't vote for Reagan. They voted for Clinton. Um, You know, that's the working class. They vote sometimes. They don't vote. It's no index of anything. Right. So, um, you know, they're unionized. They're non-unionized, you know. Um, But I kind of (laughs) knew, right, this isn't about that. Right. I knew that this was not like I said, the anti-war movement with the with the Afghan and Iraq war veterans, not really there. 
they were never integrated. They were never comfortable in the anti-war movement. And a lot, a lot of it had to do with the fact that they were working class and the other activists were not. There was just a cultural barrier there. Now, interestingly, I would say Bernie had a working class appeal. He did uh, in 2015. He certainly did. And so I, you know, engaged, you know, the sort of the Bernie movement, right? Uh, And I would say that what you have with the social democratic left now, we could just call it that, you know, the Corbynistas, the Sandernistas, um, the rank and file strategy. I don't know how salient this is in in Britain, but in the United States, there is this idea of, okay, well, what should the Democratic Socialists of America do? They should rebuild the labor movement, right? Um, and basically join the labor movement as staff, as union bureaucrats, right? Which begs the question, okay, well, what what is the labor movement? What is joining the labor movement about? What about the fact that the unions now have these war chests that they can rest on? They don't even need dues-paying members the way they used to to support them, to support their operation. You know, there are these subtle things that take place. But again, yes, it would need to reach beyond, maybe, right? Because I think that when the left thinks, oh, you need to reach the working class, they're just thinking of an electoral margin. That's what they're thinking of. And that's why they were so freaked out by Brexit and so freaked out by Trump, by right-wing populism. They were freaked out because they're only looking for the working class as a marginal constituency in elections. And they're despairing, they're tantalized by, but also despairing of that, right? In other words, it's not really about like the working class as a subject, not really. It's not. So I wanted to yeah. I wanted to loop back, Chris, to something you said, so we can tie this down. Um, I suppose before we move on. Um, so a two part question: When you say the they cashed in, um, what do you mean by that exactly? So I know you've said this. You made this. Um, I think you've made this point. Um, about how Baskar Sunkar's transition from the from Jacobin to the nation kind of marked part of this um, absorption, I suppose, within the establishment and a um, this um, transformation of the millennial left. Um, and I think something very similar happened in the UK. You can see that with the um, kind of the way in which Navarra Media has become a very embedded part of the media landscape in the UK. Um, and then you have the election of the squad, you know, so you have the kind of um, congressional representatives and all of their hangers on and followers. So when you say they cashed in, do you mean like they're kind of the upper layer of that group um, succeeded as far as they wanted to succeed? Is that what you mean by cashed in? And then secondly, when you said they did, they had a very shallow understanding of politics. Can you explain what you mean by that? Okay, so uh, maybe I'll start with the latter part. So the shallow vision of politics, I'll just say up front, and then I'll come back around to it. I don't blame them for that. In other words, in the neoliberal era of the last 50 years, what is politics? Right? It's pretty shallow. 
Um, and so I don't, I don't say, oh, well, they, they had a shallow understanding of politics that could have and should have been otherwise. Not really. They have to experience certain things in order to get that sense. Now, in terms of cashing in, okay, so I said not cashing in, cashing out. All right, I have a metaphor in my uh, millennial left is dead, which is the gambling metaphor, right? Which is that you take your chips and you you get your cash and you stop playing, right? Um, cashing in makes it seem like they're selling out, right? And I wouldn't accuse them of that, right? I, I would not. Because it's, it, you know, maybe, maybe not. And also it's kind of pointless. And anyway, they haven't given up the dream entirely. You know, so someone like Bhaskar will say, this is the best that we can do for now. Maybe in 100 years we can have socialism, but meanwhile we can improve American politics by creating some kind of social democratic politics. That's the best that we can do. So, you know, it's sober, it's realistic. I will also say about Bhaskar, how I know Bhaskar, I know him around Lenin, Leninism, not around Bernie or anything else. So Jacobin, the interesting thing is that uh, Bhaskar was a member of the DSA Youth before Jacobin. And he was, you know, we, we ended up crossing paths on the internet via a kind of Lenin revival, um, a revived interest in Lenin. And Lenin as a Kautskyan, right? So Lars Lee, his book, and also like Mike McNair of the Communist Party of Great Britain wrote a book about the older change up on the electoral left, the respect coalition, um, and also the new anti, uh, anti-capitalist party in France, right? Um, you know, these sort of quasi Trotskyist electoral formations and, uh, you know, and, and I feel like Jacobin came out of that initially in the, or the early days, it came out of a kind of neo-Leninism or a neo-Kautskyanism really. Um, so social democracy, like old style social democracy, not like post-World War II social democracy, right? Um, now, he's left that behind at one level. At another level, he's never given it up. He's surrounded by people who definitely have given it up, but maybe he himself has not given it up. So that's why I'd say that it's not about selling out or cashing in in that way. It's more about we did what we could, right? We played the hand that history gave us and we tried our best and we accomplished what we were able to accomplish. Now that's what the left has been saying for a while. That's what the sixties left told itself. That's what the thirties left told itself. They did the best that they could. And maybe they did, but again, what is it? So, you know, getting back to the question of why I published this book now, I'm thinking of legacy already. I'm already thinking, what does a future left need to know about this history? This history we just lived through, right? When people look back and say, what the hell happened, right? What was that? I feel like I'm leaving a record of that, right? Against the grain of the present, against the grain of the past, against the grain of history, right? Sort of begging to differ. So that's where I feel like what's possible 
right? So the Bernie campaign or momentum, you know, DSA, laborism. It seems to be what's possible. It's very plausible, this view. Um, but is that is that all that was possible, actually, especially given the deep history of the millennial left? In other words, it looks like that's what's possible maybe in 2015. But what if people had been doing something a little different since 2006, the previous 10 years, right? Would, would you know, and, you know, so again, it comes back to so the question of politics, um, and why I brought up the Lenin, the neo-Leninist or the neo kautskyan moment, you know, we're having a kind of uh, farcical echo of that now with the kind of, uh, I don't know, tankyism, neo-Stalinism, Maoism, like the Zoomer, you know, thing, mm. um, right? And it's just like, and the last thing that they're doing is taking Lenin seriously. They're not. Right. Like, in, in other words, for them, it's, like, it's Mao more than ever to use an 80s slogan of the, the Baba Vakian Maoist <laughs> in the United States. Right. It's Mao more than ever. Um, and so I just feel like, OK, what would it mean to think about politics? And that's why I think that the crisis of neoliberalism really points back to other deep crises. So there was the Thatcher Reagan moment. There was the crisis that brought forth neoliberalism. There was also the 60s crisis moment. There was the Great Depression crisis moment. And then, of course, there's an even earlier crisis moment, and that's the progressive moment of the early 20th century. You know, the, the moment that gave birth to the Labor Party and that gave birth really to uh, progressivism in the United States that led to FDR and the New Deal, etc. So I feel like we're stirring up old history now because the crisis that we're in is a crisis of all the ways that the prior crises were resolved right so we're dealing with the the impact of old history it's all coming back to to haunt us now and we have to really try to take as much advantage of that as possible and that means going against the left's own view of history its own nostalgia its own strange nostalgia for the 30s, for the 60s. You know, I guess in Britain, it's the spirit of 45. You know, if you know that idea, right? Um, and so I, you know, I just feel like, well, no, what about cutting against the grain of all of that? And that's really, for me, the value of Marxism at this point. The value of Marxism at this point is that it allows for a perspective that cuts against a kind of progressive view of history. Right, because yeah. I think that all of that um, assumed progress, the the reality of our present moment is that it seems like, oh, actually, maybe we haven't made that much progress. And that comes out in very distorted ways that I have a lot of problems with, like the 1619 Project, you know, this kind of thing. Oh, well, like, you know, patriarchy, racism, you know, are just these unsurpassable problems. You know, we thought we dealt with them, but it turns out we haven't dealt with them. You know, I want to hold out the possibility that maybe capitalism, maybe society more broadly has that character, right? And that it, it's being misrecognized through these other things like racism and sexism that, you know, it's mm. really like when, I, when people take that nihilism, they're really 
trying to get at something else. So, I mean, I think this is connected. You mentioned at some point in the book, and I, and I was, um, yeah, I wanted to, to kind of probe at this, um, this idea that um, a more liberal and cosmopolitan capitalism has greater freedom potential. Um, and I wonder if, you, you know, you, i correct in taking that to mean that a more liberal and cosmopolitan capitalism is not just more progressive in and of itself, but that it is more propitious for uh, struggle. Um, and if that's the case, well, we don't seem to be heading in that direction at all. I mean, yeah, its last right. gasp was neoliberal globalization, and that wasn't all that liberal or cosmopolitan in the first place. So right. other than kind of wishing for a return to 19th century style liberalism, which I think is one of the most vain hopes that one could have, um, right. what are you saying? Because, and, and this is, we're going to lead into talking about Trump and, and 2024, but mm -hmm. the wind seemed to be blowing to a more not a more liberal or cosmopolitan capitalism, but perhaps a little bit more of a statist and potentially a little bit more public capitalism rather than a private one. And mm -hmm. I think I've made this point before, but my, my instinct would be that, you know, a more public capitalism in which the state says we're going to achieve certain things and it, then it fails to do so are easier grounds or more propitious grounds for politics to challenge the state on what it doesn't deliver than ones where the state says, none of our business, we are not responsible, we're not in charge, which has been the case for the past 50 years. Right. Right. So, okay, so here's here's another thing. So, uh, you know, I mentioned I was a student of Moish Postone. And, um, you know, I had my differences with him. And the differences could come down to like Trotskyism or something, I guess, but not really, or, you know, Leninism or something. Really, the difference came down to like the Frankfurt School. Um, and how one conceives of history. And I think that, so he had this idea, uh, especially towards the end of his life, um, which is that capitalism might oscillate between liberal globalized forms and statist nationalist forms, right? That, that there might be a kind of pendulum swing in the history of capitalism. Um, and that you know, basically mid 20th century was a kind of statist nationalist form of capitalism. And then that was followed by a neoliberal globalized capitalism. And the earlier statist nationalist capitalism had reacted against the Pax Britannica liberal globalized cosmopolitan capitalism before World War One, And that uh, the crisis of neoliberalism was not to be welcomed because it would only usher in basically like kind of fascism it would usher in a kind of statist uh, nationalist form of capitalism. Um, and he was very much afraid of that. And I think the last public talk that he gave before he died was in Vienna and it was in 2018. And he said, well, the 20th century showed how disastrous the effects of the destruction of the middle class were politically. So very old Marxist understanding of fascism, as um, I think Trotsky put it, the petty bourgeoisie run amok. And he said that his great fear was that the 21st century would show just how destructive the effects of the end of the working class would be. And I just thought, well, no, right? Because you can't have the end of the working class, right? The way you could have the end of the petty bourgeoisie, 
Um, the working class is not going to disappear. It's not going to go away. It isn't. It can't. And actually, Moy should have known better, right? <laughs> so, um, but it, what it raises is the question of, you know, are we headed towards a liberal cosmopolitan form of capitalism or not? Well, we are inevitably. In other words, there's still a migratory working class. Um, there is still a Wild West boomtown capitalism in the world, right? Uh, where basically the state does say, look, just go for it. You know, um, that is still going to be. So what I would say is that rather than thinking of different phases of history oscillating back and forth, that what you have is accumulation of history. Meaning the neoliberal globalized form of capitalism of the last 50 years was statist and was nationalist. It was. It never ceased being those things, actually. It was very statist. And although the political rhetoric could be one of political irresponsibility for capitalism, capitalism still relied a great deal on the state and on very nationalistic state projects through that whole period. Um, and the left has ways of dealing with that, like military Keynesianism, right? The Second Cold War, Reagan, Reagan and Thatcher were dependent on military Keynesianism. It wasn't really, you know, market, free market capitalism. It was still statist. Um, we need to keep those things in mind, right, as we move into the new period, because I think that what's so confusing about Trump is that he seems to be hyper neoliberal, ultra neoliberal, but maybe hyper neoliberal. But he also seems to be retrograde, nationalist, like a fascist, right? He appears to be all these things. And that might be in the nature of capitalism itself, right? That it's not going to be, oh, you know, we should defend cosmopolitan liberal capitalism against the onslaught of a kind of national statist capitalism. Because, first of all, we're not going to be able to do that, (laughs) Right. So we're in no position to affect the course of things whatsoever. Um, and almost no one is, meaning what these politicians are, um, are phenomena of, of historical change. Right. So, um, you know, I think that we will probably have our economic recovery at a global scale. There will be a boom era. It will be managed to a large extent by national states. But it will also depend on a great deal of um, globalized cosmopolitan activity. Right? It's going to involve a lot of international investment. And it's going to involve a migratory workforce. Things are going to be built by workers from elsewhere right? Um, That's just going to happen. And so, again, I feel that uh, it's not about the possibilities of one form of capitalism versus another form of capitalism. At a very basic level, it might be about the possibilities of a boom, right? That I will stand by. I will stand by the idea that the old socialist left grew in a boom period in the second industrial revolution, the new left, the new left, actually was born of an era of prosperity, and that's its virtue, 
right? It might be its limitation, but it's also its virtue, right? That it could pose the question of, don't we want more than the golden age of Fordist capitalism? Don't we want more than the social democratic welfare state? That's to be remembered and commended also, right? Like we could say, okay, you know, revolt against affluence and, you know, Marcuse and whatever, right? Like we can just say, yeah, you know, or what's the other thing on the right that they say? Um, hard times brings forth like <laughs> hard, strong hard times make strong men, strong men create uh, good times, weak children or something. Yeah, good times, good times, yeah, make, good times, make, weak weak times. Good times yeah. make weak men. And then, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, no, no, not really, right? Um, in other words, I'm not going to say, oh, we really need like hard times to bring forth strong people. You know, no, not really. Um, things are hard enough, right? I'm not a worstist. You know, so I cut against that aspect of, of the left too, like uh, yeah. trying to put hope in the next crisis or something. Um, and, you know, what people are, you know, one of the things that they lose the plot on with Trump is that, you know, he's like very dark and, you know, it's American carnage and this and that. No, he's a crazy 80s Reagan era optimist. And he's a 90s Clintonite optimist. That's what he is. He's like, surely we can do better than this. Did you guys hear about him? He was so, taken to be mugshotted and 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 fingerprinted in Atlanta at the jail. And he was horrified by the conditions in the jail, in the county jail. And he came out and he's like, <laughs> now I know more than ever before why we need to make America great again. How could the most powerful, prosperous country in all of human history have a jail like this? Right? Where the conditions <laughs> are so well, horrible. I mean, yeah. Right? Well, indeed. And, I mean, so like, turning to Trump, I mean, you, you, you um, I guess, infamously wrote a, a piece um, some years back, you know, why not Trump? And, and, and it's... Um, I remember it being maybe kind of scandalous and then kind of rereading it in the book. I was like, this isn't scandalous at all. It's just kind of, um, you know, no offense is a bit kind of, nah, you know, whatever. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Um, not because it's not an advocacy of Trump. It's just kind of going, yeah. So, and so what if Trump wins, you know, like, and then it might right. be a little bit better, might be a little worse. No, 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 no. Might be a wash, you know? Um, anyway, so what, um, how do you see, the election next year um, playing out. We're kind of reluctant to get involved in the U.S. electoral circus too much. Um, there'll be plenty of it next year, plenty of entertainment to be had um, for everyone around the world to follow it. But, um, you know, to take it, I guess, a little bit more seriously to take what you've just been saying right. seriously. You know, how do you right. see it playing out? We're recording this actually the day after, I think, it, um, it, this Colorado court banned Trump from participating in, in, in its primaries. So, um, you know. Okay, so all right, so I I have the idea of an article, and I'm waiting for the right moment to write it. So I wrote why not Trump, and then I wrote why I wish Hillary had won, and then I wrote why not Trump again in 2020. Now I'm thinking of an article that would be why not Trump comma again, like why not Trump again? Like, why again? <laughs> are we supposed to really be you know afraid of this guy, right? Um, uh, because actually that was my goal in the initial article. The goal in the initial article was to, and I wrote it actually in such a way, like 
syntactically, grammatically, it was meant to exhaust, let the air out, right? To sort of be the opposite of the hyperventilation that was going on around Trump. Like it was, it was really about insisting like, no, right. And let, let the air out of the balloon, like the big scary, uh, what is it? The Trump baby? Like, it's like a protest balloon. It's like Trump as a giant, right? Yeah. like maybe yeah. like, let's, let's put a pin in that. Let's, let's let the air out of that one. Um, you know, let's stop the hyperventilating. Um, and so that was the tone that I struck. Now, of course, you know, we live in the crazy world where nobody reads behind the headline anyway. So there's like, oh, why not Trump? Oh, Chris Catron, he's endorsing Trump. And it's like, come on. Um, and, you know, so I wrote a very, a very short, it's so short. And yet people didn't read it all the way to the end somehow. I Because I, I was like, okay, I want to write something that's not going to be a TLDR, you know? They're not going to have that excuse. They still didn't. Like Moish, for example, never got past the headline. Um, and, you know, and I just think, okay, well, that's, that's a problem in the world that we're dealing with. So, you know, I, I set myself the task in 2016 of, and I talk about this in the book, that Trump was going to be like Nixon and Reagan were and Thatcher, right? They were going to be, you know, Trump was going to be the excuse that they were to not think, to stop thinking, Right. Yeah. It's going to be the kind of like, OK, we can forget all these big questions we were asking about, you know, like Jacobin before 2015. They would have articles like, what do we even mean by socialism? Yeah. You know, what is the potential future of capitalism? How what are the possibilities there? That's all just gone. Right. And instead, you just fall back on what everybody knows already. So I knew that I had to turn Trump into a teachable moment. And that's still true, right? So when Trump lost in 2020, I knew he'd be back in 2024 and probably will be elected. Now it's going to be a constitutional crisis in the United States because they're not going to simply let him be elected and take office. So it's going to be a constitutional crisis. If I had to tell you what it's going to be, it's going to be, he's going to be at Mar-a-Lago under house arrest. He will have been convicted. He'll be under house arrest because they can't put him in a jail because they can't give him secret service protection in jail. So he'll be under house arrest and he'll be elected. And it's going to be a major constitutional crisis in the United States. That's what's going to happen. Well, that's, a, think that's that, a pretty good trailer that's a pretty, yeah, for, the, that's a, for the 2024 that's, election. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like Latin America, which, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm very on board with. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's going to be like that. It's, 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 it's democracy. You know? But so, um, I mean, how, how serious? I mean, you know, that's a constitutional crisis and, a, you know, a president-elect under house arrest. I mean, unprecedented in American history. Um, and I guess if, um, you know, if, uh, as Alex suggests, I'm sure there'll be then lots of kind of um, discussion about America becoming like a banana republic and what have you. But how serious is that in world historic terms, would you say? The scenario, you know, let's right. say there's something like the scenario you've painted unfolds. I mean, how serious is that in world historic terms? Is it serious, would you say? Or is it uh, is it kind no. of part of the superficial 
it's a little bit of the superficial. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't think there'll be a civil war in the United States over it. I don't think there'll be a military coup d'etat. I don't think it will come down to exercise of force. Um, I mean, in terms of him being disqualified under the 14th Amendment, uh, under having allegedly, you know, led an insurrection, no, the Supreme Court's going to put him back on the ballot. That's just going to happen. Right. So, you know, and uh, you guys may or may not know this, but, you know, the hundred charges that he's under, right, the four indictments with the hundred charges, it's all novel legal theory. Right. So literally all the prosecution of Trump is on untested legal ground, like to convict him of anything in any of these cases would be to convict someone in a way that no one has ever been convicted before. And not because he's president or was president or whatever you know, or an ex-president, just simply, just straightforwardly, no one has ever been convicted of these charges the way they're trying to apply them ever. Well, well right? so, so, someone asked on Twitter the other day, yesterday, I think I saw this, you know, what are they going to do to the guy? What about the guy who shat on Nancy Pelosi's desk? You know, is he allowed to run? <laughs> you know, and it's like, I think that's, yeah, indeed, like. Right. So January 6th, it's a big mess. So anyway, um, I would say that it's lawfare. In other words, why are they prosecuting Trump? Why why are they setting up this constitutional crisis? Um, it's it, you know we are still it, post neoliberalism is still still neoliberalism. And I remember there was a guy brought in to the Clinton White House, um, or the Clinton campaign before he won election. I think Mark Morris who's like a marketer, right? And so this is the first time that people used like polling as intensively and market research as intensively. It was with Clinton, with the election of Clinton, with the Clinton campaign, but also the Clinton presidency. And they brought in a guy, David Gergen, midway through his presidency, who was an old Republican like advisor. And the scandal of the time was, oh, we're reducing politics to marketing. Well, obviously we're way down that highway now, right? Yeah. And so basically the idea is this, can they demoralize Trump's supporters? Probably not. Can they demoralize swing voters from voting for Trump? Can they depress general Republican turnout in the swing states? In other words, can they, can they, smirch Trump to the necessary statistical degree, yet they're doing what they can. Basically, I would just say, of course, the Democrats are doing what they can. And they're pushing the envelope and they might be sleepwalking into disaster, but I don't think it will be that much of a disaster, meaning the disaster will be that Trump will be elected. Um, but I don't think it will be a civil war or coup or anything like that. I don't. I, I, I actually don't think so. Um, but, you know, they're they're pushing it. And we know that bad things happen out of miscalculation. Right. Wars happen out of miscalculation. Um, so that's, you know, but I, I, again, I don't really see much of a potential for that. Um, I mean, the thing with Trump that I always like to point out is that he kind of has no supporters like at all, really, like not even right, Melania, yeah. not even Jared and, and, 
Ivanka. Like he's got literally nobody. Right. And so like, obviously himself, himself, he's got he's, himself. he supports himself and he believes him. He believes in himself, I, I think. So yes, that's where you start. Yeah. That's, and that's, that's good. That's another neoliberal. Like it's a very self-help. <laughs> like, Where do you start? Well, first you have to believe in yourself. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's, uh, I think that basically, um, like I said, it's lawfare, and they've been doing that since the Clinton impeachment, right? There is lawfare. It is remarkable that they've done lawfare since Richard Nixon, since Watergate, but it's it's remarkable that they didn't impeach Reagan over Iran-Contra, and it's remarkable that they impeached Clinton over a personal peccadillo, right? Um, and so I think that that's the, you know, the late neoliberal era and now into the post-neoliberal era or the emergent post-neoliberal era. Lawfare is, is part of politics. It is. It's, it's, the, it's the going, th- it's the coming thing. It's the way capitalist politics works. Um, all right, Chris, thanks very much um, for, for being with us, for discussing the millennial left with us. And uh, we'll have to have you on another time soon. Great. Thank you. Thank you.